Hello, Merry Christmas, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Peter, for his support, and all my Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page is becoming a real resource for conductors and lovers of the world of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with an English conductor and composer who is equally at home conducting on the concert platform and in the opera house. He famously studied composition with Messian, he's directed many music festivals, he's won the Arnold Schoenberg Prize, and his last two operas have been huge successes. It is a very great pleasure to welcome Sir George Benjamin. George, it's just wonderful to see you and to speak to you and to meet you. I don't think we've ever met, but I've definitely played your music. How are you? <laughs> uh, fine, thank you. Nice to meet you, too. <laughs> um, I always go right back to the beginning, and I know, having read Wikipedia, which, as we know, is so reliable, um, <laughs> that you started composing at the age of seven. Um, were you playing any instruments before you started composing? Yes. Firstly, the recorder. Okay. And then apparently I showed some aptitude. And then I was pushed into the piano somewhat reluctantly at first. Yeah. And then once I got to make some reasonably musical sounds, I, I grew to love it. So, yes, the piano. And then actually I tried both oboe and flute. And, um, and I did play the percussion quite seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And, and composing. That was something from the very beginning. There was, so you, there was always music in your head or ideas that came to you. Um, do you I, I'm interested by this because I, you know, I composed as well for a little while. Uh, in fact, we have a mutual friend from Kent, uh, Tommy Pearson. Uh, we grew up together. Yeah, uh, he composed as well. Um, I'm, I don't think I've got any of my pieces at all from those early days. Have you still got any of your first pieces that you ever wrote? I'm afraid I have. I've got... <laughs> everything i think yeah. my grandma didn't give me any advice in my whole life she died when i was about 14 or 13 but in those years there's only one thing she said which is when if you've written something don't throw it away mm. don't throw it away so <laughs> i i obeyed so I was somewhere there's a whole lot of very 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 bad juvenilia <laughs> um the next big and, and let's face it, this is pretty big. The next th big thing that happened to you was that at the age of 16, you went and studied with the great composer Olivier Messiaen. How did that come about? Uh, did you move to Paris um, uh, for the two years that you studied with him? But I'm intrigued. How did that happen? Well, I had two other wonderful teachers before then. Mm. Um, a woman called Miss Turi, Margaret Turi, who was a sort of miniature... Um, Fanny Waterman, sort of very, very bossy, very inspiring, rigorous, wonderful teacher for a little, a little person. And then I went to another wonderful teacher, a marvellous musician called Peter Gellhorn, who had been a refugee from the Nazis in, in the, I think, the late 30s, and had made his home in Sheen. And I went to have private lessons with him. And he knew Messiaen well, mm. firstly, because he led the BBC Singers for over a decade. 
and they'd done some of Messiaen's works, but also he, as an accompanist, he was an all-round musician, marvellous all-round musician, he played some of Messiaen's song cycles, accompanied them in the British premieres at Wigmore Hall. So it was thanks to him that I met Messiaen. He took me over to Paris, in fact, in April 76, and wow. sort of handed me over to my next teacher, which was um, an unusual thing. The only time it ever happened to Messiaen, he said to me, that the only time any teacher sort of and gave another student to him in all his 40 years of teaching. And then, uh, yeah, I was in Paris for two years. The first year I was still a schoolboy in England and I would go over about once every month, every six weeks for two or three days. And then when I finished my school, at the age of 17, I went to live in Paris for one year. And did he teach, because it sounds like this was a private arrangement, rather than way back when in whatever episode it was, I spoke to Hugh Wolfe and Hugh Wolfe, were uh, ended up going to Messiaen's class at the university or the conservatoire, wherever it was, but he wasn't teaching composition. He was teaching sort of music appreciation. Um, and Hugh went to that class. And of course, composition was brought up and the music of other people and how it was written. But with you, was it different? Were you taught, you know, one-to-one or in a class? Everything was always in a class. Yeah. Absolutely. And these classes were enormous. They started at quarter past nine, and sometimes finished as late as Hoppos too. Wow. They were gigantic. And uh, we had those three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday mornings. So I saw a huge amount of him. Um, afterwards, we stayed very closely in contact till he died in 1992. And so by then, I, I, he stopped teaching the year that I finished in Paris. But we stayed in contact. So I often had, I had a huge amount of time alone with him. But... Uh, in, in the conservatoire, it was in a class. Mm. At this point, uh, the, the, the other C word, not composition, but conducting, um, had you at all conducted by this point, or did that come later when you went to King's College, Cambridge? Uh, I'm intrigued to know when it happened, and when uh, my dear friend Pete Hill, the ex-timpanist of the CBSO, when did you get stickitis? Uh, <laughs> that thing about conducting, or stick poison, as Hulk and Hardenberger, the famous trumpet uh, player, calls it. When did it happen, or had it not happened by this point? Oh, yes, I'm afraid. It happened when I was about nine. <laughs> um, I, I wrote, uh, what was it? Oh, yeah, it was a setting of Tennyson's The Bugle um, for chorus... Symphonic Orchestra, and I can't remember. All I know is that at my school, we tried to put it on, a performance mm. of it. And um, I couldn't conduct then. I didn't know that, <laughs> but I couldn't. <laughs> and neither could the people singing sing, at least what I'd written. And neither could the sort of one eighth of the orchestra I wanted who were able to play in the performance, could they play? So it was a disaster. And it was very tonal, C minor, regular meter, and I met a teacher in the corridor the day after, after this humiliation of a catastrophic, my first premiere, catastrophic one. And he said, well done, well done, Benjamin. Very good, very modern. <laughs> <laughs> and he only heard one eighth of it very, very badly played. But that meant that I, I, I and also I wrote a lot of music for school plays hmm. and would conduct them during the performances. So I had got into the business of sort of conducting and, um, making music with my hands, as it were, yeah. uh, way, way, way before I went to Messiaen, when I was very young. And so at what point, or maybe you're like a few people I've interviewed, um, and you didn't ever have any lessons, at what point did you have any conducting lessons? Or was it all done, um, you know, le learning by doing? 
I never had a, a really an official conducting lesson. I did speak to, for advice to mm. a certain, a lot, to some people, to Pierre Boulez, mm. whose advice was me, do it, mm. just do it. And I know Bernard Heiting, so occasionally I would ask him stuff. My wonderful publisher, Sally Cavender, is married to John Carew, who's an mm. immensely distinguished conducting uh, coach, philosopher, whatever you want to call him. And, and because of that nearness, then yes, I got a lot of, and still occasionally do ask for some really, really, really useful advice from him. My closest musical friend was Oliver Nusson, mm. who was also a composer conductor with immense knowledge, superb technique, brilliance in every possible direction. And so we would talk most days. Mm. And so I must've picked up a lot of, of tips and advice from him as well. But I never studied it. Thing is, the, the route to becoming a composer conductor, I won't say a conductor, composer conductor mm. is, someone says, would you like to conduct a piece of yours? And you say, yes, please. And it's not a total disaster. So they ask you back. And then they ask you to do a second piece, perhaps by another young composer. And then a year later or two years later, someone says, well, perhaps you'll do a whole concert. And then you fall into it like that. And mm. um, yeah, it's, it's strange. <laughs> it's a strange way to go into it because I know that most people learn it, have lessons and conduct two pianos for sort of five years and have proper training, but there's no rules. Well, it's very similar to how Sir James Macmillan did it. Uh, I recently spoke to John Adams, um, the American composer. You know, he was also conducting works of his own, but also works of other students of his age, or he was um, contemporaneous with when he was at university or, or at a conservatory level. And I think it's, in some, in some respects, you can learn so much by conducting two pianos. But as, you know, somebody you know very well, Simon Rettle, once said, Conducting two pianos is great if you're only going to conduct two pianos. Uh, it, it doesn't teach you how to conduct an orchestra because an orchestra is a much different beast. Um, I mean, talking about Simon, um, what I was going to ask you, but you've sort of gone there already by talking about uh, Pierre Boulez and Bernard Heiting, Oliver Nusson, what an incredible figure. We're going to I'm going to come back to him in a minute. Um, but, you know, two of your earliest pieces, uh, Ringed by the Flat Horizon, premiered by Mark Elder and at first light with Simon Rattle and the London Sinfonietta. I'm sure going along and watching those, those two pieces being rehearsed, again, you're picking things up from, I mean, conductors who are true greats. Even then, you know, they were early in their career. They were, they were great conductors. Surely you're picking up things yes. from them as well. Yes, they certainly were great conductors. Yes, and, and have obviously remained so emphatically. Mm. But you... You pick up some things, yeah, but you only really learn if you know what you're looking for. Yes. And you have an insight into that. And so I don't think I picked up as much as I should have done. Mm. I mean, there's just so much to learn in terms of conducting. And it's there's just such an infinity, basically. It's an endless to craft and uh, an extraordinary, mysterious one in many ways. Um, yeah. Knowing a little bit more as I do now, and if I transported myself back 40 years, I would have learned an awful lot more. Hmm. You learn some things through instinct and osmosis, but if you know 
about something more, then there's so much more you can, you can, you can learn. It's just like if you're an expert on trees and you know what breeds they are and how their leaves grow and etc., you will see and understand so much more. And if you don't know any facts, you haven't got any back, not much background, you'll just, you'll, you'll look at it and you'll remain ignorant. Mm. So I, I didn't learn as much as I, 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 I learned by doing it. I really did learn by doing it and by making, yes, a lot of mistakes. <laughs> yeah, but that's no different from any other conductor. Um, you know, we all make mistakes. I mean, I didn't start to really till I was 30, 35. I've been in the CBSO 13 years as a violinist by then. But, you know, you learn by mistakes. But and- that doing that... You must you must pick up a lot though. You must pick up a lot because you can you you know what it feels like to be conducted by a beat that hasn't worked for you mm. or by a whole interpretation that's not working for you. And so you must. Be, I never played. I played the timpani and percussion in the orchestra. I even played timpani and Carmen and Burana and the Verdi Requiem. So, but you're a long way from the conductor. And who says I was watching? <laughs> And and also, I would say also by playing the timpani, you are, I've said this before, maybe on this podcast or on my Patreon podcast, but the timpanist is almost the second conductor of the orchestra. If they've got any rhythm, if they've got good rhythm or any music which has a rhythm in it, the whole of the rest of the orchestra just listens to the timpanist. You know, that's how it works. So, you know, you're already conducting by playing the timpani. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Yeah, doing it, just learning by doing is 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 fascinating. But what uh, what's amazed me about this podcast is chatting to people like yourself and every other conductor is that we're also still so fascinated by this profession that we do. It, it's never ending. You know, you somebody there's a buzz goes around. Oh, there's the latest video of whoever. Have you seen this video on YouTube of whatever? And we all sit and watch it because we want to see how the greats did it and we want to see what how magic comes about you know the latest documentary about Bernard Heiting's retirement and I couldn't take my eyes off it 90 minutes of wonderful um music making it is an endless yes I saw it too yeah Yeah, it's it's wonderful I want to briefly before we go on to your conducting in particular conducting your own works but also what you program your own works with and when you just conduct concerts without your own works I wanted to go back and talk about Ollie Nusson I had the privilege of playing for him on many of many occasions, as you said, a, t- a wonderfully clear technique, uh, but also a wonderfully clear mind of how he was going to put things together and rehearse things. Um, sorely missed, but I mean, what a great conductor! What did you? I mean, I'm sure you had many a chat with him, and what what a wonderful person to chat to. I chatted to him on a couple of occasions. What did you, he, he offer advice wise to you about conducting? Most of our time, we were not all of our time, we were talking music, 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 yeah. music. Mm. And he was conducting and always did more than me. And um, so he'd be, he'd just be talking about the business of doing this with Stravinsky and doing that with Berlioz and, and his own music. And there were some times I went in with some precise questions, but it wasn't actually often, in fact, mm. no, it wasn't, it wasn't often. Um, but he was not only he was the most wonderful friend we we had such fun together as friends as well i mean our conversations which were enormous they usually lasted an hour and a half (laughs) and they would suddenly turn a corner and become immensely serious to talk about some aspect of low trumpet writing in berg and that would be half an hour or progressions in Scriabin or an opening of the opening of san francisco polyphony of ligeti or uh, and and really, really, the, 
maybe the most intense conversations I've ever had about music. And then they would get very silly. <laughs> <laughs> and he was also very silly. So he, you, you know, he, yeah. he, he was a world expert on daytime television and Judge <laughs> Judy. And uh, when he did Composer of the Week, his final words were, did you, it's been a great pleasure to do this with you, Mr. Nusser. And he said, it's been a pleasure for me, except you do realise you've had, you forced me to stop watching Loose Women for a whole week. <laughs> Loose Women being a, <laughs> a programme which I've learned since is, at 12 o'clock, isn't that right? Just, it was live, the, the, the composer of the week. He did, he did it live. Yeah. So he was profoundly, the most profoundly musical, extraordinary uh, thinker and, and musician in every atom, of his be every atom of his being. But he was also the most, as you saw, I, I hope. Yeah. Yes. He could be grumpy in front of you, Chris. Okay? He was in a bad mood. It was a really bad mood. But he was such a sweet and lovely and funny, incredibly funny person. Incredibly mm -hmm. funny. I, I did on occasion see him be grumpy in front of us at the CBSO, but when I chatted to him off the podium and away from the, the concert hall on a couple of occasions, he was extremely funny. Uh, and this in, this huge intellect and love of all things music. Um, I mean, there's a lovely story in an earlier episode that uh, Bob Spano, the American conductor, tells about uh, Ollie Nussen basically converting him to Wagner, even though neither of them particularly liked it at the time. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, his, we had long, we had much talk about Wagner, yeah. and um, a lot of it was down. He really disapproved of him as a person. He disapproved of the ethos, and he he didn't want that music in his ears. And yet, because he listened, I don't listen to music when I'm composing, but he listened to he, he listened to music ten hours every day when yeah. he wasn't. Uh, 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 and there were times when he said, "Listen to the second act of Tristan or the last act of Goethe Demerung," and he was just completely bowled over by it. Completely mm. bowled over by it. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that's uh, that's what turned uh, Bob Spano onto the ring cycle. Um, but yeah, a, a lovely, lovely man. And I wanted to just touch on him because I knew you know you knew him so well, and and uh, yeah, your face is lit up when we talked about him, and that's that's superb. Yeah, I adored yeah. him. He was. Yeah. I miss him so much actually he was he was just the best best friend best musician full stop so as we touched on earlier on your early experiences were conducting your own works and then somebody that was contemporary where you end up doing two pieces and three pieces and whatever. How soon was it before you were conducting whole programmes? And at the beginning, I'm assuming that often that a whole programme would have some of your music in it. Do you find it difficult or easy to put other music with your music? Oh, not, 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 not difficult. No. Yeah. I mean, I love the privilege of doing my music and I love the, the I've just written a, a brand new orchestral piece and I had nine hours spread over five rehearsals, I think more, with the Mahler Chamber Orchestra, with whom I'm particularly close. And I had so much time for a 17 minute piece that I was able, no one had ever heard it before, to, to do microsurgery mm. in enormous detail on virtually every page, changing tiny little details Boeing's, mutes, dynamics, articulation. And that would not, I wouldn't be able to do that if I wasn't conducting. So I drive everybody mad. Mm. Um, and so <clears throat> that I that also I I I love that. Um 
I'm thinking that my first experiences as a conductor were with the London Sinfonietta, mm. and uh, all of them, and it was incredibly important to me, incredibly, and they were so nice to me, actually, when I think back, mainly. <laughs> There's one person who wasn't. No, years <laughs> later, I haven't forgotten. <laughs> oh, well. But they really were. They, they yeah. really, really were. And so there, there would have been 100% contemporary music programmes that I did, yeah. maybe with a peace of mind, maybe not with a peace of mind. In the 19... 80s and particularly 1990s I was doing quite a lot of conducting mm. and that would inv often involve not my own music in, in the 20 years since then I've cut back a lot I've cut back a lot like next year I have one or two dates that's all mm. because mm. I want to stay at home and compose um when I've got my like a newish piece of mine and I'm conducting it there's a degree of tension which mm. is special because if I conduct it very badly I I lose as conductor firstly but everybody always blames the composer so I doubly lose as composer so some in some ways it's it, it can be more enjoyable when there's not my own music involved it depends on, on the context I, I think my first full program as a conductor would would have been around like 1987 88 mm. and that would have been all modern music but then the rep in the 80 in the 90s then I started to do to do all sorts of other things as well yeah yeah um you just sort of mentioned it with your latest piece and how you could do microsurgery before the premiere. Um, I don't know how to break this up into, into two smaller questions, but I'm going to try. Um, I know, speaking to Sir James McMillan and Bramwell Tovey, who also is, is more of a conductor-composer than a composer-conductor, uh, I would say, possibly, but speaking to Sir James McMillan, he said he found it quite easy to flick a switch in his brain and become the conductor who looks down dispassionately at the score of his own music and then puts it together. Whereas Bram Tovey told me, actually, more often than not, he'll look down at the score and go, oh, well, I quite like that colour. Or maybe I should have written that with horns rather than with trombones. Or do you know what I mean? How easy is it? Do you find it to turn your, your brain to becoming a conductor? Do you? Or, or do you look down at, say, when, if you conduct at first light and think, actually, maybe I should have done this or uh, so many years ago when you wrote it. What's your mental state when you're conducting your own music? I know it's a tough question, but it's, no, no, it's <laughs> I'm intrigued, absolutely question. intrigued. It, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I ever change the instruments of or recolor the music or indeed no. change the harmony. I might change out of like 200,000 notes, one a couple. Yeah. If, if when I hear them in the flesh and I think I, I misjudge that, I would prefer that note. But that's very mm. rare. It's small things to do, to do with balance and articulation and tempo as well. There mm. you need the reality of sound to, to really get things right. And I'm like Ollie, I'm very picky, I'm very fussy, and, and I try to be perfectionist. Mm. Um, but you raise an issue which it does speak to me because the idea of, as it were, bringing down a curtain and separating yourself from the, not, the notes on the manuscript paper. Mm. And that is, it's the right thing to do. Your job is, as, a, as an interpreter, even if your own music, is firstly to be of use mm. to the musicians so they can play confidently well and to shape the form and also to present the music to listeners for whom it will be very unfamiliar, if not completely unfamiliar. Um, and that requires a degree of distance, just like yes. one looks at a score by a living or dead composer and one initially has a great amount of distance and then one submerges from oneself and gets to know the music, hopefully deep from within, and then you can interpret it. Well, I, I, um, I compose quite slowly and I'm 
little bit obsessive by nature, so I really do know the notes that I write, and there's a reason for them. And also, I'm constantly going through my music. It inhabits me while I'm writing a piece. It just won't go away. And so I'm hearing it in my head all the time. And so when it comes to having that degree of distance, that's something I found extremely hard to do at first. Mm. And so some of my performances when I was a kid um, would have been really damaged by that because I would have been so, as it were, closed within myself and the, and the internal world of the music that I wouldn't have had both the clarity and the distance and the simple degree of relaxation, I suppose, muscular re relaxation and, and uh, a certain degree of distance in order to be clear and helpful and breathing and every, for everybody on, on, on the platform. And that's something I really had, I really had to work, work at mm. uh, a lot in, in the last 40 years, yeah. That's, that's and no so... one told me about, no one explained that to me, but, yeah. but no one, um, I, for Pierre Boulez, it's funny, people said he was very cool, I think he wasn't cool at all, but I think he had an incredible management of his emotions, and was almost, 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 I say, able to turn them off, and therefore he had this this tremendous intelligence, tremendous fire, but also this extraordinary degree of um of concentration, but also distance when he was conducting. And that I think wasn't so hard for him. Mm. I've, I've, I found that very hard, but one makes progress if one keeps on trying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think it's fascinating that uh, what you're talking about and the fact that you have to get what you, you know, sort of divorce your, yourself away so that you, you, you learn to have to give what the, the orchestra needs. You're absolutely right. That's the job of the con, of the conductor is to give confidence, is to be there to help them when they need the help. Uh, you know, the analogy I often use is it's riding a horse. You know, most of the time we're just gently holding the reins, but there are times you need to pull the horse's head to one side or the other, or help them jump over something. Uh, and the, you know, the orchestra being the horse, obviously. Um, and it's no good if you're 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 off staring at the view. Uh, you know, you do need to be in control. And and uh, but yeah. but there's one. There's one other thing, which is if one if one gets too overheated emotionally mm. with empathy with the music, it stops you hearing. Yes. Literally, there's something phys physical, hormonal in the blood. I don't. It literally closes the ears. And the moment you stop listening, responding to what the reality of sound is, it's over. Mm. It just doesn't. You're just chopping time, yes. and the, the 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 communication and the flow that should be happening. Uh, can't happen. I think it's really, I, I sense it's very important for players that they, I know this is the case, that, they, uh, that the person up there is receiving the sound and hearing it with precision and clarity. That mm. makes a big difference, I think. And it makes a big difference to the way that things sound and the way that things are played. Very, Isn't that very, right? absolutely true. Yeah, I agree completely. Absolutely. Uh, the second part of my massively long question was <laughs> to do uh, again with with work. Is it workshopping or not workshopping? You know, you've had two very successful operas. I mean, Written on Skin is possibly the most successful contemporary opera um, of this century. Uh, I'm sure it is. And also Lessons in Love and Violence. Because, as we know, dear listener, the process of putting an opera together is six to eight weeks. Maybe it's longer for a world premiere. Does that give you time to tinker 
when do you switch you know having heard your answer your wonderful answer about having to you know be cool sort of uh, as a conductor is there a, po a point in the process where you switch from being composer who's got a world premiere coming up to being the conductor of that world premiere um because it's such a long process where you're just guest conducting it's a week three days four days but six weeks is it's, different. A, it's a very different very different process by the way I don't mean cool in terms of being cold and detached. This is the funny thing. One has to channel one's love for music and passion for music, mm. heat in the right, in the right way. That's the thing. And not let it, it it's, a, it's, it's quite, I think to really explore this, you'd have to be Zen or Buddhist to, to really try and understand what, what you, you have, you have to do, because if you don't give any, if you're not giving any, you know, yeah. spontaneity life again is useless completely useless so it's it's a very delicate issue how to balance things yeah. in terms of opera um i love the process because it's true i get a lot of time i get 10 weeks maybe uh, okay. in which to to um including rehearsals with the singers before anything else happens yes uh and um something like that and it's, uh, I love the process and it gets so exciting towards the end when you then have the orchestra by itself and then the orchestra with the singers and then the lighting. It's just such an exciting, thrilling journey. I, I love that. Uh, there's no clean moment when suddenly <laughs> you switch <laughs> off and yeah. detach yourself. It's not, not for, for me, uh, no. Um, and that there's, one, there's one phenomenon which is a bit strange. Uh, you know, I, I suppose partially the way I write music is can't be completely divorced to the way I will want to conduct it. Yes, yes, <laughs> of course. And what maybe yeah. suits my hand and what, what suits, like I'm not, if there's some things I don't like doing, it's unlikely I'm gonna use them very, very much. But mm. what's funny about writing a piece is that there's some corners that you just don't expect, which, which, which end up being really difficult. And <laughs> you don't know, you don't know why. Mm. And that, that's, a, that's a strange phenomenon and perhaps uh, they don't necessarily get better over the 10 weeks, <laughs> <laughs> despite one's desire. Um, so uh, it is a very different process, but I, I, I like both processes. Mm. Mind you, for this recent premiere, I was so glad I had a lot of time and I really had as much time as I needed. So I was able to do tremendous amount of detail. And, the, and I got the feeling that the instrumentalists really wonderful players, wonderful players really got to know what, what, what was needed. So, yeah. How good are you at uh, handing the baby over? Um, you know, sitting in the audience and watching your music being conducted by other people. Um, do you find it stressful or are you quite, you know, are you well aware that once it's born, uh, it's going to have a life of its own and, and some people are going to be, you know, five metronome marks slower than you wrote or tw 10 metronome marks faster than you wrote or whatever. How, how good are you a listener? <laughs> Depends on the performance. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> okay, I am very happy to give you eight percent, even fifteen, if you want, yeah. on the tempi. Yeah. If you understand the music and yes. you've got something to say with it, and you've got the technique to bring it out, and the musicians are willing, there, I really am. I, I'm not against my music being interpreted, being done in a different way from me. Sometimes yeah. I even copy or learn from definitely frequently from the way that other people do my music, and I think that's a really good idea. I should do that myself. Let's try that out myself. Mm. Um, so I love that. I love to hear. I can remember. I could 
think I'm thinking of them in my, in my mind now, performances, wonderful performances, better than I could do, fantastic performances of my works that leave me a memory that lasts forever, forever. Mm. And then the performances which are terrible. <laughs> Their memory lasts forever. And um, that is, uh, yeah, that's really worth avoiding. Mm. When a piece is sort of massacred, lack of rehearsal, lack of understanding, antipathy, who knows what, or just something goes wrong on the night. And I'm there, I can tell in the second bar, oh, we're going to be all right tonight. <laughs> mm. And then I can say, oh, no, I can tell. And by bar three, I want to leave. <laughs> Please let me go. <laughs> I can remember some, I was my 30th or 29th birthday, there was a performance. I won't say who and by what of, of one of my orchestral pieces that was execrable. The conductor had, had, had apologised in advance for the performance that it was going to be terrible because he simply didn't have enough time to rehearse it. And the program was far too long and far too difficult, but it was truly terrible. And you know, at a very important point, some, a very audible, considerably important contingent of musicians came in like five bars early and kept on going. Oh, and it was, but it was terrible from the very beginning. And I remember that because it was horrific and it was my birthday. And the other thing is, that he was so upset himself, as he should have been, <laughs> that he forgot to give me a bow, which was such a relief. <laughs> because you, you go up there, everybody always thinks, oh, that's how the composer wrote it. I understand that's the case. What a god, what an absolutely awful piece. They may well think that, they should indeed think that, but at least I'd like them to have the opportunity of hearing the piece really well played. Mm. And then there's a possibility that some of them will like it. Well, maybe his brain had been fried uh, the, to the extent that mine was fried, the one time I almost forgot to give a composer uh, the bow that he deserved. Um, I, I ended up, on about a month's notice, conducting uh, the 80th birthday concert with the BBC Symphony Orchestra for uh, Peter Maxwell Davis. Um, and Max was there on the second day at uh, all of the rehearsals. And the whole of the second half was a piece called World's Bliss, which... Famous a, piece. Yeah. yeah, very famous piece. Uh, it's the one time I'd spoke to Simon Rattle about three weeks before the rehearsals and he asked me what I was doing next and I told him that I was doing World's Bliss and he looked at me and went you're conducting World's Bliss good luck with that and, <laughs> and um, anyway that 37 or 38 minute piece is and I've said it, it's the hardest piece I ever I have yet to conduct it's just monstrously difficult not only for the conductor but for everybody on the platform that was the end of the concert I was so relieved to have got through it, and it was a, I thought it was a stonking performance, to, but so relieved to have got through it with that and navigated my way without clipping any wing mirrors or puncturing any tyres. or that I must have done three or four on and offs before and I walked past Max and then thought, oh, shit, I better give him a bow. It is his 80th birthday concert. And it was that at that point I then stood him up for the, for the, the big bow. Um, but yeah, I was I, my brain was so fried by that piece of music and conducting it that maybe you know your conductor was uh, was in the same boat. Uh, I don't know. Um, no, no, it was not, it was different. It was a right. very bad performance, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just it was just awful. But you know, the thing is, the thing that's sad is that sometimes you can have really wonderful rehearsals and everything's right, and something yeah. it's unusual, it's rare, but something just goes wrong. Someone, mm -hmm. someone plays a wrong note in the first bowl. Something, some, something in the atmosphere. Something changes, and that's part of the danger of music making, which I actually think is incredibly important. And therefore, there have to be, mm. there have to be some disasters. But it, if it's a really, really bad performance, it sort of hovers in the air for a, 
a few years. It does. I, so, I'm, I, I'm not going to mention the piece or where it was, but we were on tour with Sir Simon Rattle. We were playing Amala Symphony. That's all I'll say. And I played with that orchestra for 22 years. I think the first movement of that performance in that hall on that tour was the best I ever heard the orchestra play. It was astonishing. And then a horn player split something at the beginning of the second movement, and, and it felt like the entire pack of cards came down. And it can, as you said, it can be one tiny thing. Uh, and it can be so fragile uh, with a team like that. And it's not the conductor's fault. It's nobody's fault. And it it did, as you say, hang around for a couple of days after that. You just think, well, it was just astonishing, the first movement. Uh, and then it all it takes is one tiny thing. Um, and, yeah, it's, it is so fragile. You know, that, that's... that's, that's strange in a way because if something I normally I'm used to listening when things get off to a really good start even if there is the odd blip it the energy just somehow surf, rushes over it and yes and yeah little mistakes happen it's it's not that's normal um so that's 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 strange to hear a performance that started so magnificently and then gosh yeah it was a shame but who, it, who, it, know, it, who knows what's going to happen? Every every night is different. You never know. But there's also the occasional ones when everything goes, seems to go right and oh, get absolutely. better. As a performance. It doesn't happen every day, but there's three or four evenings I can recall when, yeah, when things went... And you don't know why. You don't know why. It might be something to do at the end of tour. Often that, that can be, you know, the end of a talk and sometimes people really galvanise or the last performance of a run of an opera. Or, but sometimes it, the, the opposite. So yes. you can never be certain, but it's, yeah, mysterious as it should be. <laughs> exactly true. Uh, I agree. About four or five, I remember, astonishing nights like that where just perfection happened. Um, but yeah, they're, they're few and far between and it's magical and you don't know when it's going to happen. Um, festivals. You've been director of a couple of festivals um, over the time, I'm assuming you you get other conductors to come in as well and and help out at the festivals and do some of the the, the other concerts. Um, do you have a sort of group of friends that you like to invite when you run a festival to come if it's contemporary music? I mean, because there are some conductors who are better at contemporary music than others. Uh, or I mean, do you do the lion's share of the conducting when you've done? I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it called Ojai or Ojai or um, how oh, do you pronounce oh, it? Ojai. Oh, oh, Ojai. Oh, yeah. Ojai. Oh, well, that that's in a way diff. That when I was in my twenties and thirties, mm. I was very involved with yeah doing festivals. I did mm. one in San Francisco. I did. I started Meltdown in, in London. That's right. I yes. did one in, in, in France. I, I did a lot of that and playing a lot of lot of contemporary music from all over the place. And then when I reached about 40, I thought if I carry on like this, I'm not going to write the amount of music that I should write. Mm. And I'm not going to be able to write some really big pieces. So I actually stopped. The biggest thing I ever did, and it was huge, ridiculously huge, was a thing called Sounding the Century at the BBC, Radio 3, mm. which was the Radio 3's retrospective of the whole of 20th century music. And it, wow. I wasn't the, the, I was the artistic consultant or artistic something. And uh, we did about 500 concerts. It was wow. enormous. But after that, I thought, right, I'm not going to do this. So I have done since then, yes, a few, but it tends to be a one-off one year when I do things, and if it's two concerts, then maybe I do them myself. Yeah. And if it's six concerts, 
like in Paris last year, where, uh, there was something in before lockdown in Jan in February 2020, Présence Festival in Paris, wonderful thing. There were about 13 concerts, and I think I conducted two, and the rest of them were chosen by Radio France. Mm. And maybe there was one concert given by the London Symphony as guests where I had recommended a conductor to, yeah, to yeah. do it. But that's not 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 usual, mm. I suppose. But there are some special, there are a few, I can think of two or three specialist contemporary conductors who are friends of mine, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite rare that I'm asked. <laughs> but if I am asked, I will say, I will at least mention their names. Mm. No, as you say, it is something that some conductors shy away from. I don't know whether it's because of the the oral skills required or the technical skills required because, you know, some beating multi-time signatures and whatever else. But, you know, I remember going back to Ollie, he was a master at uh, that sort of stuff. Um, Amazing. I mean, he was a master at everything he did, but he was a master at just taking apart the jigsaw, you know, making sure that he put it all back together so we could all see the picture by the concert. And the, and with contemporary music, that that is, that's a skill. That's a real skill. Um Maybe it helps to be a composer doing, doing maybe, that, you know, yeah. because because you're used to, as it were, the reverse process. Yes, that's true. <laughs> of starting with nothing yeah, that... <laughs> and building it up slowly. That's very true. I've seen you conducting two different youth orchestras, uh, the Junger Deutsche Philharmonie and the National Youth Orchestra, uh, conducting La Mer. I watched it this afternoon. Um, youth orchestras, I, I'm sure you enjoy conducting them, otherwise you wouldn't do them. Uh, how much do you enjoy them? I love the energy they give you, um, because, you know, it doesn't matter how tired you are when you walk in the room, there's a group, a group of youngsters who can't wait to play music. Um, what have your experiences been like? Oh... So happy. I just, that I just love. I worked with the Junger Deutsche Philharmonie last January in Frankfurt and I had such a lovely time with them. And I adored the National Youth Orchestra. I couldn't believe these children, 14, 15 year olds could play like this. And it was so moving to think the future of music in this country was in hands like that. It's just unbelievable. So I have very special very, very special sense of joy from such things. And I think in the years, I got almost no concerts next year, but I am, yeah, I'm going to the European Youth Orchestra, the European Community Youth Orchestra in a couple of years. And I'm looking forward to that tremendously. And I think I might be going back to Germany as well. So that's something I really, 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 really hugely enjoy for the same reasons that you, exactly what you described. Yeah, I mean, I'm conducting the, the Royal Birmingham Conservatory Orchestra in the concert at the end of this week. And then next week, it's the CBSA Youth Orchestra's first concert back since COVID hit. And I can't wait, you know, um, uh, just to feel the energy in the room. And I, I've already started at the conservatory rehearsing and, and just this learning curve that, you know, when you, when you hear, hear it go from something that's vaguely like what's on the page to something that just leaps off the page, you think, my God, that's happened in such a short space of time. Um, talking about on and off the page, when you learn and you score, be it your own composition or an, a, a piece by another composer, or even a, you know going back into the Romantic era, do you have a process for learning it? Do you sit at your desk? Do you use a piano? 
Um, do you work from big to small or from page one to the last page? And for geeks, are you a scribbler in of things? Are you a red, blue and black highlighter pens or do you keep it all nice and clean? I don't, I'm not aware of having a, a, a sort of regular, absolutely solid sort of technique of doing this. I, I, yeah. I, it depends if I know the piece or if it's something that I've never heard before, mm. presumably a contemporary piece. Um, I suppose I, I, I will look at it for a few days, weeks, occasionally. At first, it doesn't want to let you in, does it? <laughs> That's true, <laughs> yeah. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get close to my bite. And, uh, and then, then there comes the time, you know, where it's, I've, got to, I've got to get serious. So um, I, I'll try and get an idea of the, um, of the big shape of it. But then, of course, the nitty gritty, the tiny bits are so important as well. So I do, yeah, I do, I do write a lot into my scores. If there's a bit of notation, particularly in a contemporary piece, like wrong type of rest in the wrong place in the bar, I'll actually sort of tip exit and rewrite it. I yeah. like, it's like a dog peeing on a land post. You know, I like to put my mark on the <laughs> score and quite a lot of marks on, on the score. because that's, that's the way I digest it. I suppose with more romantic classical music, I will sort out the phrase structure. And but I'm also a teacher and I, I, I love to analyze things. So I will look into how the music is made in terms of its themes, in terms of its harmonic rhythm and harmonic mm. direction. And so to try and understand, I suppose, try and have a little degree of empathy for what the composer, who was a person, why he or she wrote these notes in this order, in this way, and to therefore to try and get some empathy to what one can do to bring it to life. Mm. Brilliant. So Brilliant. yes, I mark, I mark, I'm a, I, I mark a lot. Good, <laughs> good. So do I. I remember uh, I, I, Andrew Davis. Andrew Davis's scores. Um, I worked with him when I was very young, and I was always amazed. There was almost nothing written in them, and also Boulez almost wrote nothing. And when he did, it was in red or blue crayon, usually something to do with tempo. And uh, I was surprised. Yes, it's possible that if one writes too much, it, it makes you might actually not look at the music when you're conducting it, and that would be a problem mm. because I think to actually. Part of you needs to know the music incredibly well, but also in rehearsal, it'd be really good as if you were giving, you had the feeling that you were looking at the music for the first time, so that it was really fresh to the eye. So how you achieve that, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm going to use his name yet again, but I once, rather cheekily, um, we were just about to go on and play the suite from the Miraculous Mandarin at Symphony Hall, Birmingham, and Ollie Nelson was conducting. And But he wasn't there. Um, we were just about to go on for the second half, and his score was sitting to the one side. So I, I just started conducting, so I went and had a look at it. And he, like you and me, wrote lots of things in his scores. But it was so neat uh, that you could still see the music, but you could also see his thoughts and you could see what he was going to do with beating patterns and tempi and all of that. And I thought, well, if I ever you know, really take this thing called conducting up, I'm going to make sure my scores are neat and tidy so I can see my thoughts as well as the music. I can't, I don't always achieve it, but um, it was something I saw and thought, right, that's it. That's that's the way I'm going to do it. Um, he was absolutely meticulous and yeah. each colour had a, a symbolism, Yes, regardless of what the piece was involved in. Everything was written out almost like he was trying to imitate print with his hand, which was the case also in his own manuscripts as a composer. Um, now, there's another thing about him. It, it, towards the end of his conducting life, he was so expert and so, he'd done so much and his technique was so extraordinary that 
he could mark up a score like two nights before the first rehearsal and he would know it. Mm. He'd know it very deeply. And also, um, I mean, he was a bit odd in some ways, my dear friend <laughs> Ollie. He wasn't like everybody else. No, no he, he definitely this, wasn't there. <laughs> he had this capacity also, and I noticed this in his mum when I knew, when I saw her, of being aware of more in the room than you should be aware of. Almost like they had eyes that were wider. Mm. I, 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 he was once in hospital for a long time. This was 20 years ago, and he was very ill, and he got better. But it was not nice. And his mum would go and visit him every day, and I'd often go and see him. And she'd be sitting quietly by his bed, and I just had the feeling that she knew, like... 360 degree, degrees around her, she knew everything that was going on. And he had that, that, he'd inherited that capacity. So he was unbelievably quick in learning scores very, very uh, um, quickly. Uh, also, he, um, of course, he had a fantastic ear and fantastic intelligence, um, but he had an amazing, he had too much of a memory in some mm. ways. It made him suffer as a person. He could, and he had this extraordinary photographic memory. So he came to a first rehearsal, maybe not having done a huge amount of work, but knowing um, the piece with an uncanny degree of precision and depth. And he probably have television on in the background when he was marking the score <laughs> <up> as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, um, yeah, some people just do it their own way. And, and yeah, yeah, what a wonderful, wonderful man. <laughs> If you are new to this podcast, you may not know that there is another way you can learn about conductors and conducting, by subscribing to my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers, and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can read my diaries when I guest conduct. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded fans of this podcast. You can read articles on conducting and conductors, and also see videos of the great conductors. And you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most places, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Sir George Benjamin. George, it's that moment no conductor can escape. It's the 10 questions, and I start with the first two as one. What sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? Yeah, the sound and noise I love is music. Mm. All sorts of very not all music by any means, but a lot of music, yeah. And that's been the case really in, in my conscious, the whole of my conscious life. So mm. that's the sound. Of course, there's some musical sounds which I like even more than others. Uh, there's some notes that I really love. There's some instruments and specific registers, which I, I am I'm obsessed and I can't get rid of this obsession. <laughs> I wish I could sometimes, but they keep on coming back. So yeah, uh, I, I'm picky and fussy about sound like, I don't know, like a, I imagine a chef will be with his spices and herbs or whatever. Mm. And uh, are there particular ones I really, really, really adore? Some I like lots and one or two I don't like very much. There are a couple of instruments I'm not, very, very keen on, but I should probably keep that to myself. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> and, and a sound you hate? Yeah, I was aware this one's coming and I gave this some thought and my answer actually is music. <laughs> and that is uh, 
when I'm trying to compose mm. and I'm listening, I'm deeply concentrating, trying to hear absolutely everything that I'm writing, including the timbre and this, everything. And then outside my window, I live in Maida Vale in London. Someone is playing a radio or someone's playing some, some music. Very few noises can distract or, or disturb me very seriously. But if I hear any pitch or harmony or any music at all, that's it. The, my as well, access to my imagination is completely derailed and cut off. And so that I live in terror of that. Mm. Uh, fortunately, I have very, very tolerant and very, very nice neighbors who don't make it never, never, ever made a musical sound that I'm aware, that I can have ever heard. So I've, I've considered myself so fortunate in that. But it, that is a source of great real terror for me real real fear because if i've got a big piece to write an opera and there's someone playing pop or classical music or anything next door for six hours a day it's not going to happen no mm. way it's probably why grieg and marla had composing huts on the side of a hillside yes. miles from anywhere else um but we can't all yes. have composing huts um <laughs> there we are if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing it would depend where I was. Mm. I remember I, I've been quite a lot in Hamburg in the last five years at that wonderful, fabulously, extraordinarily archi architecturally amazing new hall, the Elbe Philharmonie. And last year, almost my only concerts after, yeah, after the um, pandemic started, I was in Ham Hamburg working with two ensembles that are very dear to me, to, to my heart, the Ensemble Modern and the Mahler Chamber Orchestra. And my partner, Michael, and I, we had a day off and we took the train to Lübeck, mm. which is Thomas Mann's hometown and a very musical town. Buxtehude was there and Bach was there. Mm. And it's got the most fabulous churches, extraordinary spires. It's very, very beautiful. So that was a real thrill, a real thrill. Can you name some favourite conductors or just one conductor of yesteryear? Well, my friend Ollie and I, we used to talk a lot about dead conductors and what made them brilliant and he was fast he was a world expert on this so he introduced me to the joys of Fritz Reiner mm. uh, Chicago Symphony Orchestra who's candidate for number one great conductor of the 20th century and also candidate for nastiest conductor in history <laughs> he was a real brute he was a horrible man at least to his musicians unspeakable unforgivable just appalling, but <laughs> mm. what results he got. And uh, yeah, his recordings, say of Richard Strauss or of Debussy or, or early 20th century music is extraordinary because it has a degree of precision in the balance and, uh, and just clarity of texture that you, you, you can almost not believe. And yet, unlike George Sell in Cleveland, who was also wonderful, um, it also has a hell of a lot of schwung and, and energy and mm. force and just like a tidal wave. So he has the best of every world, at least in musical terms. So he's extraordinary. Another conductor uh, that we both admired very much is Piemonteux, mm. the man who conducted all the premieres of all the Stravinsky Ravel Debussy pieces. Um, when I was a child, I, would, I did see, I saw Carian conduct, I saw Burma conduct, and I got, I have to say that, um, uh, Bernstein's Mahler was very important to me when I was mm. a teenager. Very, very important. The, this, this, I really do think there's 
something something just right about the the, the emotionalism, heightened emotionalism that goes with Mahler's music, and uh, his control of form was so so powerful, so potent. And then, uh, as I'm only going to talk about uh, those who are no longer with us, I suppose there's there's I've known particularly known two great composer conductors, Boulez and and Oli. Mm. Mm-hmm. In, in my lifetime, and both of them made a very, very huge impression on me. Uh, going back on, on what you said earlier about, you know, when you, you get too involved with the music and you stop listening, don't you think that those Bernstein performances of Mahler are dangerously close to that at times um, because of the searing passion and, and the passion he felt for Mahler's music? I don't think he ever crossed the line, but by God, is he, you know, he, he's sailing very close to the sun uh, and the wax is starting yes. to melt at times. Very, very much. I'm sure you're right about that. I'm sure mm. you're right about that. And that would never happen with Fritz Rhein. I, I've seen videos no. of him conducting and it's like a sort of aged stegosaurus frozen. You've got this big wide neck and it almost doesn't move at all. And these rather horrid eyes that look look up and terrify people. <laughs> and this little beat as well. But, the, but, the, but it doesn't sound like that. It no. doesn't sound like that. No. And this sort of transcendental clarity and transparency. There's, there's the opening of Don Quixote of uh, Richard Strauss, this amazing nightmare passage before the cello comes in, which is the, the most complex music I think he ever wrote, and which is overloaded in the most thrilling way. And yet you hear uh, um, Fritz Reiner's recording, and you can hear everything, including stuff you really shouldn't be hearing, like boring chromatic scales of the bass clarinet or st- <laughs> stuff. It, it's uncanny. It's almost like there's a sort of microphone moving around between each beat, going from areas of the orchestra to the next. I and they only had a mono microphone, I think. Mm. I don't know how he did it. Mm. It's mm. extraordinary. I've seen that video with the huge bulging neck and the eyes peering across his orchestra. I'd have been frightened to was, death. Was it, was it Beethoven 7? I think it was, yeah, Beethoven 7, yeah. It's, yeah, I would have been frightened to death. Um, I think you just alluded to the fact that you might be dodging the answer to number five, which is, can you name any favourite favorite current conductors? Now, uh, recently, a couple of people have given me the reasons why they can't name them, and that's fine. Uh, I do remember one who just wouldn't give an answer. If you can give me a reason for not answering them, uh, answering number five, well, then I'll <laughs> let you off. <laughs> yeah, because there's, I've had the pleasure, I know some fantastic, wonderful, amazing conductors. And I've had my music uh, on occasion conducted by some fantastic, amazing conductors. And I, I don't want to, to mention some of them and then forget others no, and, no. If, and, and potentially offend people who I who I've feel so grateful towards. So I think it's much safer, <laughs> diplomatic, and probably cowardly not to ask. <laughs> well, the last composer conductor I, I spoke to, which was John Adams, gave me that answer and then proceeded to list lots and lots of people who'd done lo- lots of work for him and then actually sent some more answers on afterwards because he'd realised he'd forgotten. So I will yeah. I will allow you that answer per, uh, because, you know, it's, it's only fair. Um, so it, it's perfectly fine. The point is what you're saying is there are loads and loads of great conductors out there um, and, yeah, too many and to how. possibly and mention. How. Now, as somebody who's conducted a lot of contemporary music, it may be one of your answer to question six. It may not be. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Um, the hardest work I think I've conducted a lot is Chronochromy of Messiaen, my beloved teacher, 
Mm. which is an extraordinary, incredibly virtuosic showpiece for orchestra written in the early 1960s. And it's notorious for being very, very hard and is very hard, but very thrilling to perform. And I think I've done it almost like 15 times now. Mm. I've done it a lot. Then there's another work, which is even harder than that. So I remember Messiaen talking about that, this piece, and saying, when, when it was mentioned, saying, I don't, he said, I don't know this piece very well, but I, I know it's extremely difficult to conduct. And I wish I remember that when I programmed it, because it's a piece by Pierre Boulez called um, uh, Eclat Multiple. Eclat is very, very hard, but multiple is even harder. Mm. Um, Eclat involves you making decisions about when in, within boxes, within sort of half a page, you can choose which bit comes in and you point to them with your finger. And sometimes you have 11 choices to go through and you can almost do it randomly. That doesn't somehow suit my hand and my brain very well. <laughs> and then multiple is for a much larger ensemble and towards its end, it, it's in, it gets involved with groups of appoggiaturas, grace notes that have to be conducted in bars that are very long. So you'll have sort of seven beats in a bar and then you'll have in between the main beats, da -da -da -da, three grace notes that be conduct, a group of eight grace notes, da -da 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 -dum. Da, 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 da. And it is so, so, so hard. So I, I conducted it once in London. I'm sure it wasn't very good. And then the, like a couple of weeks after I finished my opera written on skin, uh, a request came in from the Ensemble Anticontemporain in Paris that Pierre Boulez was not able to do a tour, which con concluded with this same piece, would you have to be free to do it. And I'd finished the opera a little bit earlier and mm. actually I had sort of two months with very little in. So it was a three week project. So I said, yes. And the thing is, Boulez could no longer see well enough in order to conduct, but my God, could he, he's still here and he was all there as it were. So I had to rehearse this piece um, with him present, with his group, the Ensemble Anticontemporain. Mm. And I'd only got about four or five days to relearn it. And I didn't do it as well as I would like to do it. I really didn't. And, and it was quite, uh, he was incredibly nice, but I, yeah, it wasn't as good as I, I should have had two months to, to, to learn the piece as it, as it really needs to be learned. And um, so, yeah, that was really, that was quite hard. Yeah. That's a pressure gig. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And not now, long, yeah. not long to learn it. And he's sitting there with his orchestra <laughs> when you're conducting it. Yeah. But, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> in hindsight, it makes you think, why did I say yes to that? But that's a, yeah, that's a pressure gig. And Chronochromy, is that the one with the in which the middle movement is a bird song for solo string players? Correct. You got it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I remember yes. playing that. Uh, yeah, it's hard. And there are long, long, long passages of sort of 3.8, 3.16, 2.16, 1.8 or um, oh. xylophone or whatever it is. Um, yeah, just yeah. Yeah, loads of it. Oh, it's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's one other I could add to that list, which unfortunately is a piece of my own. <laughs> I'm not going to say what it is, okay. because I will conduct it again one day. But I had no idea while writing it how really hard it is to conduct. And this one has been conducted by a lot of other people. And in a way, for my relief, they found it really, really hard as well. Mm. The tempo is very slow and there's tons of tons of subdivisions of nines and fours and sixes and twos, even fives, I think, in, in between each beat. And there's a lot of things which are together within those beats. And if it shifts in pulse by 
a microsecond. The whole the whole image just goes completely fuzzy. So uh, that's really, really, I had no idea when I was writing it, it was going to be as really, really, really hard. If you've got, a, have you got a couple of, couple of minutes? Can I just quickly expand on that um, before we go on with the other questions? I asked John Adams exactly the same question about a short ride in a fast machine. I've conducted it 31 times. I cannot get that bloody piece in my memory at all to conduct it from memory. William Walton said, well, I don't know what the fuss is about with Portsmouth Point. I find it quite easy to conduct, where every other conductor has found it a bit of a pig ever since. Now, when you write something, do you ever think, actually, I'll find a different way to write this because it actually would make it an awful lot easier for me or for the next generation or future generations to conduct? Is it ever something that, that you think about? Not so much consciously, but it must be in the back of my mind, yes. Mm. And again, I think I intuitively go for a music that will f be comfortable and be enjoyable for my arm and for the way, what, what, what I like to do. I suppose that's, that's natural, just like if I write for piano, mm. being a pianist, mm. the way I play the piano and, and the way my fingers work will, will somehow get into the, um, into the way it's written. I'll say one thing though, that I, I, uh, I'll try to make things as easy as possible. I'll try to make things so that, uh, in other words, not to overcomplicate a thing, uh, overcomplicate things unnecessarily. Mm. In, you, you mentioned earlier in, in my piece at first light, at the climax of the second movement, at letter S, there's a two four bar where there's a down, but there's a, it's a sort of climax of the second movement. There's a downbeat, and then there's a quaver on the downbeat with a pause on, and then after the pause a lot of the low instruments all come in together on the second quaver of the two, four bar, slow tempo. Mm. Um, I have to tell the orchestra, wherever I do it, I'm going to conduct that downbeat twice. So I'm going to do and one, mm. and one, and. Yeah. <laughs> and then it, they all, and someone always forgets, at least in the first few rehearsals. Now, if I'd written a two, four bar with a pause or a one, four bar with a pause, and then had a new bar line with the instruments and the bass coming after after a quaver, it would have saved me 30 seconds and having to stop a couple of times or give a dirty look at someone <laughs> uh, uh, in the rehearsals. So now I would do that. Yeah. I would do that. I would yeah. do if I were aware what problems are unnecessarily awkward or or difficult or unpleasantly so that I, I know a little bit more now to be able to at least try and avoid those. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? My nice um, sachet, what do you call it, of pens and, and pencils and tipex and various types of eraser and ruler and that all that stuff which I might need just to sort of get into the minutiae of a certain bar here or there or perhaps renotate something a little bit. Um, so I suppose that rather boring response is, is my stationery. <laughs> But you say that, but we're now well into the episode 90s. Uh, I'm not sure which one. It'll be one of, you know, in the 90s, this episode. Nobody else has mentioned that as an answer. Nobody's mentioned taking, mm. you know, pencils, rubbers, things that we all need. Um, so it's not a boring answer at all. Uh, and I, I'm, also, I'm you know, you. Some, some of these are um, wide tipped. Some of them are very narrow tipped. Some of them are oblique, you know, all sorts yeah. of... I yeah I've always loved stationery shops enormously and I use a wide diversity of pens and colors and crayons and highlighters when I'm composing above all it's in pencil but I use other things so yeah I suppose I like having those things with me 
What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I'd get rid, mysteriously and magically, of the two minutes that precede me walking on stage to conduct a world premiere of one of my pieces. Oh, brilliant answer. I don't know if it's brilliant, but it's the truth. No, it is. I, yeah, I agree with you. Not, not because I've been in that position, but I hate those last two minutes before I walk out to conduct. I just want to get out there. That, uh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I don't know whether that's part of your answer, but it's a brilliant answer. Go on. <laughs> it's very much my answer, part of my answer. But there's the added thing that this piece has taken me 18 months to write, or three or four years if it's an opera. And um, if I do my job badly in an hour and a half to come, uh, it's really the, the damage is, is unthinkable. And so a huge weight is, is, is at this very, very last moment on my shoulders. And once I get out there, touch wood, I really enjoy it. Mm. I love being, I love making music with others. And I, I just, but, but when I'm, as it were, waiting and the, the, those last two minutes of tick, tick, ticking away, oh, that's not, that's, a, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nodding and smiling, but by God, I'm with you. Um, a mixture of nerves, a mixture of impatience. I don't have the weight of the world quite as you've just described it on my shoulders like that. But of course, there is an audience there and you're worried about what they're going to think. Well, you know, yeah, those last two minutes, if you could just just leap forward in time and walk out. And as you said, the minute you you bow to the audience and then turn to the orchestra, well, everything's except, gone. It's, you know, it's, I find it, it's, you know. Except if you could do that, then. The two minutes before the two minutes would be bad. <laughs> it would be, yeah. That's true. Yeah. So, let's so, face someone it, has yeah. to yeah. someone has your, your your someone has to say it's like, right, the next two minutes, you don't realise this, but they are going to be cut. Out you go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Number nine. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt or would have liked to have attempted? Yeah, not many. Actually, it's strange, and I consider myself so so very fortunate that I wanted to be, once I got the music bug really, mm. really, really badly, I got bitten very badly when I was about six or seven. What I just, there's nothing else I could do. I had to do this. I had to, I just, I just, that's music is, is the best. Mm. Um, I, I did wonder how thrilling it would be when I was a child to be an architect. The idea of producing a beautiful building and seeing it used and lived in, and seeing it at sunset, seeing it during a storm, seeing it from this angle, seeing it from the mountains beyond, that must be in incredible. But then you also have to deal with councils and patrons and rules and neighbours and competitions and all sorts of horror. At least when I'm writing, I'm basically left entirely by myself. But no, it's very hard, uh, mm. very hard. I got the music bug so badly. So, yeah, I'm one of these strange people that just... Yeah, just the music's my life, so. I chose architect when I was interviewed for this podcast for episode 50, um, much for the same reasons as you did. And uh, But then, you know, I caught the music bug when I was 14. I wanted to be an orchestral violinist from the age of 14 onwards. Before that, it was England cricket captain or England football captain or whatever else. But I chose architect because I think 
you know, it's a creative process, but it involves minutiae. And that sort of sums up conducting a bit as well. Um, you know, it, it's the whole overall thing, the whole overall building, but you've also got to work out the, you know, the wiring uh, and the plumbing and the waste disposal. And, and you know, that's what conducting is as well in the rehearsal process. It's going through and learning a score. So maybe that's why I chose it. I don't know, but, you know. Um, if I'd asked you age 12, would you have said a cricketer or, or sportsman? Um, probably, yeah. I was a fairly decent fast bowler. Uh, I, I had a trial for Kent when I was 16, which was oh, the wow. same... It was the same day as a youth orchestra rehearsal. And I was worried about being late for the rehearsal. So that tells you, uh, or it told me later on where, where you know, where maybe um, my my brain was low, my, my mind was going. But um, were you late? I don't remember. I don't remember. I remember I bowled. I bowled terribly. I got smashed all over the place by kids slightly older than me. Um, and yeah, that was that was the end of that. Um, but I've played ever since. I've still played now, and I, I love the game. And actually. I'm one of these days. I'm gonna. I promised I'm gonna do this. I'm, there must be about seven or eight conductors I've interviewed for this podcast who also love the game. I'm gonna get a box at Lords. I'm gonna invite us all there. And uh, so, if you're a cricket <laughs> lover as well, come along. Um, <laughs> There'll be a deathly silence if you get eight conductors in a room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. There'll, there'll probably be queues of orchestral musicians waiting outside with. With coshes and cudgels, take their vengeance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna announce it or advertise it. <laughs> and the final question, possibly my favourite question, number ten. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Food. <laughs> food. Because <laughs> I like. I like so many different sorts. I love yeah. Asian food. Mm. Vietnamese, Thai. Yeah, Japanese, Chinese. Mm. Uh, I love Indian food, Sri Lankan food. I like Persian food. I like Peruvian <laughs> food. I like Moroccan food and Italian and French. So it's impossible. For, I'd like all of them. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> and if I'm going to feel a bit sick, I'll only have 22 hours to go. So. <laughs> and could I pin you down to a favourite drink that you might you know, given the choice, a, a world's bar, um, is there something you would naturally go straight for? I don't drink a huge amount of alcohol. I love a very, very good French red wine. So that's mm. a possibility. Um, a bone, perhaps. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, I also like coconut water. <laughs> I bet you haven't had many responses with that. <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, nobody said coconut water. Others have mentioned good red wine, but they've not mentioned bone, which is an absolutely gorgeous red wine. Um, mm. But yeah, brilliant. I have had such a wonderful hour and a half chatting to you, George. Um, I hope in the future we can meet and um, that would be very nice, Mike. Over yeah. a glass of red. Uh, but thank you for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> It's a very great pleasure that one and a half hours went by like a flash. Yeah. Thank you so much. Lovely to, lovely to talk to you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an American conductor who's at the start of his career, but has achieved so much already. He's been the assistant conductor of the San Francisco Symphony and is currently the conducting fellow of the New World Symphony in Miami. 
He was also the founder of an extremely innovative group called the Elevate Ensemble. But until then, bye bye. <laughs>